This is the Embrace the Messy podcast. I'm Shannon Schinkel. I'm a high school educator, challenge seeker, lifelong learner, and embracer of all things messy. I find my inspiration from individuals who are passionate about learning and embracing change. Join me as I share my own experiences and interview people who will inspire you to embrace the messy too. I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek. I recently read his book, The Infinite Game. For those of you unfamiliar with Simon Sinek, he's the author of Leaders Eat Last, as well as Start With Why, and the popular TED Talk, How Great Leaders Inspire Action. Over 62 million views, folks. Start With Why and How Great Leaders Inspire Action detail the importance of having not just a what, what you are doing, and a how, tactics and processes, but also a why, your purpose. The what, the how, and the why make up what is known as the golden circle. According to Cynic, most companies have a solid what and how, but what distinguishes great companies from less successful ones is having a why. In the infinite game, Cynic goes deeper and discusses how beyond the golden circle is what's called a just cause, a context for all the decisions you'll make that inspires people to work hard and make sacrifices because they believe in the cause. The just cause is idealistic, it's hopeful, and it's inspiring. It's what makes someone want to jump on the bandwagon with you. But here's here's the important nugget that really stuck with me. The just cause is something one strives for, knowing full well they may never fully attain it. But it's so darn important they'll die trying. It's for others, not oneself. There's no ego. There's no start and stop. There's no like end points. The just cause is well infinite. That's why he titled the book, The Infinite Game. Here's an example. Simon Sinek's just cause is, I imagine a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and end the day fulfilled by the work they do. See, idealistic, hopeful, inspiring. Now, I was on a website of a I won't name the, 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 the brand, but it was a popular athletic wear website. And I decided to kind of poke around and see if it happened to have, you know, like a mission statement. And sure enough, look at what I found. Helping our collective be well in every aspect of their lives, physically, mentally, and socially, is at the core of how we create our products and experiences. There's no talk about money. There's no talk about a bottom line. It's idealistic, hopeful, and inspiring. And it's about the people they're trying to sell their products to and their well-being rather than the company themselves. Now, I could go on and on. I explored lots of different businesses online. Now, I don't own a company. I'm not a CEO. I'm an educator. But I'm also trying to inspire other educators to move from traditional to more innovative practices. I'm trying to motivate them to, with this podcast, embrace the messy. Why shouldn't I have a just cause? So, maybe I'll create a just cause. And I did. Through the process of developing my own just cause, I realized 
that the just cause is centered around my values, what, what I hold true and what I believe in to my core. As many of you know, I do a lot of extra writing and speaking off the side of my desk. And sometimes other educators will ask me, Shannon, do you ever sleep? By the way, yes, solid eight hours. Thank you very much. I do it because it's so meaningful to me. When a message feels really important, I somehow don't mind putting in the extra time to do it. It's not about it being like super fun, you know, it's it's not about the money. You know, however, it is nice to be compensated when I do some of the work, like a workshop, but it really is about the cause. When I give a workshop, I think if I can persuade just one person to try this blank, that's one more person drinking that Kool-Aid. If I can reach one person to read this particular blog post I just wrote, that's one person contemplating their own learning journey. For me, that's like watching a baby take their first steps. When I make myself vulnerable and show courage, and that inspires educators to be vulnerable and show their own courage, it's so, so rewarding for me. It's also an important thing to model for students. If they see me wrestling with what is important to me and I'm transparent about my values with them, maybe they'll be able to wrestle with what is important to them and develop their own set of values. Wouldn't that be cool? So Shannon, what's your just cause? And here it is. For every child in every classroom to succeed and every educator to be empowered to get them there. And I think I know another educator who just might join me in my just cause, and his name is Trevor McKenzie. Trevor is an educator and a highly sought after speaker and presenter on the topic of inquiry, literally traveling the world to share his expertise. He is the author of several books, including Dive Into Inquiry, Inquiry Mindset, Inquiry Mindset Elementary Edition, and Inquiry Mindset Assessment Edition. And he's a fellow British Columbian. I hope you enjoy my interview with Trevor McKenzie. Trevor McKenzie, welcome to the Embrace the Messy podcast. Honor. You started a podcast. You shut the front door. Look at that. <laughs> Congratulations. This is so exciting. Thanks yeah. for inviting me on. This oh. is great. Oh, thank you. I, I got to tell you here, before we actually get started, I just want to tell you that I'm so incredibly grateful for the work that you've done around oh. inquiry. Like, it's really helped me with my own journey, like following you on Twitter and accessing the resources on your website. And of course, your stellar books. It's really, I just really want to show my appreciation. Really, really, yeah. really grateful for the work that yeah. you're doing. Honored. Thank you. And standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, the, the educators that have helped me and, and, um, you know, mentored me and, and the school of thinking that is vastly, you know, many more years under the feet than I have. So um, that means a lot coming from you, Shannon, and just want to honor the school of thinking and the mentors that have shaped my understanding of what inquiry is and what inquiry isn't. So yeah, I'm sure I'm sure those names will come up throughout our conversation today. <laughs> so before we actually delve into inquiry mindset, etc., I actually want I'm really fascinated by origin stories. And yeah. I'd like to know, how did you actually get started in education? And when were you actually bit by the inquiry bug? Yeah, yeah. Well, I got started in education. I, I had an amazing teacher in high school. Not all of them were, sadly, but I had one. And sometimes all it takes is one, to be quite honest. And gosh, she left such a positive mark on um, how I saw him impact other students. 
And um, when it came time to really settle into a vocation, like where do I want to kind of, you know, put my feet into a career? Yeah, education was top of my list. Um, I, I'd worked with the Boys and Girls Club. I remember I grew up in the Okanagan in Kelowna. Listeners, that's just a, a beautiful place in British Columbia to, to grow up, lakeside and mountainside. And um, and, and working with youth in, in the Boys and Girls Club really helped me understand, you know, what it could look like working with high school students. Um, and I went to the University of Victoria, had a fantastic education at UVic. And then I remember my first few years, Shannon, kind of shifting gears towards why inquiry for me. Um, my first few years, I worked with a lot of Indigenous students. Um, and we had this amazing team of colleagues that came together weekly, daily, sometimes by the hour to support one another. And gosh, my understanding of youth and, and inquiry and student-centered learning really came from listening to Indigenous youth and kind of um, not being stuck in a practice, but being responsive in a practice. I think I learned that from my mentor teachers really early in my career. And those first five, six, seven years really shaped a lot of the values I hold close to me today. Um, and it just so happens that those values show up in, in teaching from an inquiry stance. So grateful for um, all the trials and tribulations that have brought me to my current understanding of what teaching looks like for me. Did you shadow anyone who was already using inquiry-based learning that kind of yeah. made you go, Yes hey, and no. Yeah, this. like, yes and no. I, I don't think any teacher on those teams or early in my career would call it inquiry. But, you know, I was at a school that really was committed to centering the student. Um, we had amazing students, very diverse demographic, but just the, the staff, the culture of the school was really reflective, um, really supportive of one another. I had a number of mentors who kind of just took me under their arm and, and guided me and, and asked me questions and listened. Um, so although I, I wouldn't have called it inquiry back then, I think there are a bunch of experiences and tools and language that was slowly coming my way. And then when I discovered inquiry, like when I discovered this school of thinking, I was like, oh, there, there's, there, there are words to these beliefs. There are words. There's a language here. There are protocols and structures. And, and so, I, I, yeah, I, at the time, I don't think anybody would have called it that. But gosh, they were certainly committed to best meeting the needs of their students and, and not just teaching the curriculum, but really listening to students and shaping the curriculum and, and our, our work with students, with students at the center, truly. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things, uh, your resources online, is I love your sketch notes. I love how you frame your thinking in order to teach educators. And so what I have for you is a kind of a question. And for listeners, you can find all of these resources at trevormckenzie.com. And of course, in uh, Dive into Inquiry and Inquiry Mindset Assessment Edition. But Coming back to your sketch notes, is this kind of like a chicken or the egg kind of question? Did you start sketch noting those drawings as a way in which of developing your own process in unpacking it for yourself? Or was it a, a framework that you just wanted yeah. to instill within the writing process? Yeah, well, you know, gosh, I'm not artistic, nor am I creative at all. Um, and so I have a dear friend, a kindergarten teacher, Rebecca Bushby. Um, you know, Rebecca and I met, we were actually invited by our school district to do uh, a little bit of a presentation around what teaching and learning looks like in our practice to all the administrators in our district. And I, I turned and I saw this kindergarten teacher during her presentation. I said, 
I'm, I'm like the high school version of her. Like here I am working with the bigs <laughs> and she's working with the littles. And I just kind of gave her a hug and I just wanted to hang out with her more. And when it came time to write my first book, um, I had known that she was a really talented sketch noter. And I, I kindly asked her, Hey, would you, would you like to collaborate? Would you like to help me bring these visions to life through the power of sketch noting? And thank goodness she said yes, because I tell you, Shannon, early days, I would send her text messages of scribbles, like sketches and drawings of the swimming pool graphic, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. And she just was able to see the vision and bring it to life through the beauty of sketch noting. And, and I tell you, inquiry isn't lockstep. It isn't this chronological process. But there are, and there are many misconceptions around what inquiry is and what inquiry is not. And the sketch notes just help bring these processes to life so beautifully. So everyone, you can find them for free on my website. There's no, there's no cost there. And I strongly suggest not only using them for our own practice and for our teachers, our colleagues, but use them with your students, use them with your scholars. Many schools I support have several of them printed off throughout the school. They help with parents understanding what this inquiry thing is all about. Mm -hmm. And they help students understand this changing kind of dynamic of what teaching and learning is, the changing level of agency in the classroom, right? So yeah, shout out to Rebecca. Um, Her inquiry, what is she? Inquiry teacher, I believe, is her Instagram and Twitter handle. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's just an amazing colleague and and she's the talent behind the sketch noting. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So you already mentioned the swimming pool diagram. Yeah. And I think yeah. when people think of you, Trevor, they I think they automatically go to the swimming pool sketch. Shannon, I, I've arrived at schools <laughs> and I get on the stage and I bring that one up and, and people say, oh, you're the swimming pool guy. <laughs> yeah, It's yeah. hilarious. But, you know, I'm, I'm happy brilliant. to be known as the swimming pool guy for some teachers because it, it tells me that obviously the work precedes my arrival at the school. But more specifically, something resonates with them in terms yeah. of what inquiry yeah. is and what inquiry is not. So I'm happily the swimming pool person. So so let's dig into that for a little bit, because let's say there's a listener on here who's new to like they've maybe heard about inquiry, but they'd like to unpack it a little bit more. Yeah. I think the swimming pool diagram is a great pay- way to start. Um, yeah. Could you... Um, through your own language, explain that swimming pool diagram for listeners. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if we can imagine a swimming pool of varying depths from the shallow to the deep. And, um, you know, I think a common misconception around what inquiry is, is teachers think of this deep end of inquiry where it's very student driven, student choice. And in fact, there are four types of inquiry. So the shallow end is more of a teacher controlled and then the middle depths are more of a guided inquiry. And then, of course, the deeper end is more student-centered, student-directed inquiry. And just to be able to crack open inquiry and look at, well, it's not just the deep end. There are these other types. It's very helpful for teachers because, of course, to get to the deep end, there are many scaffolding measures that we need to take with our students. And, and that's helpful for teachers to think about what is the scaffolding I need to implement with my, my particular students. Um, And not just merely thinking of inquiry as, again, the deep end, but this really, really fascinating partnership that we have with our students from teacher directed to guided to free. You know, we see this changing dynamic of teacher to student. And then we really question, well, what are the skills our students need to be successful in the deep end of the pool? You know, if we think of, you know, swimming pools and as an analogy, what are the muscles students are exercising? What are the routines? What, what are the moves they're making to get to the deep end? And, you know, in British Columbia, we have our competencies. And, and so I can't think of a better way for teachers to grasp the role of skills and competencies in a student's journey to take on more ownership and agency over their learning. So it's helpful for teachers, 
it's helpful for students and then it's helpful for our planning. You know, in, in my classroom, I tend to start in the shallow end with students and slowly through a gradual release of responsibility, we get to kind of the middle depths. And if all goes well, if I don't mess it up, we get to the deep end together, Shannon. So that's yeah. a little bit of a, you know, drive by in terms of um, what sure. the swimming pool represents. And there's so much to talk about with regards to the swimming pool. You know, inquiry certainly isn't a flick of the switch pedagogy where we, you know, talk about it once and, and that's the end. We're, we're good with that thing. It really is an aspirational pedagogy. It's something that we continue to reflect on and refine and improve upon each each and every day, to be quite honest. Yeah, that the scaffolding measure is really, really important. That's what I loved about the pool, because when I first so a little story about me, so I know you know that I've done inquiry based teaching and learning with the kids, mm -hmm. project based learning, because I, you know, I tag you whenever I tweet it or I post something on Facebook so on the Beyond yeah. Report Cards. But when I first started, um, it was my daughter had decided to go into the Montessori program. So she was a late entry Montessori program student at our school we have a 789 program right. so i couldn't help then with her interest in project-based learning and the way montessori was developed i couldn't help but kind of get bit by the bug then i went on to websites like um laura randazzo's web website yeah. right when she does a lot of project-based learning and then i read so she does 20 percent time and kevin bruckhauser's book right the 20 percent time project and i was i was sold but what you bring up is really, really important. See, I jumped into free inquiry with my yeah. kids, right? And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. The kids loved it. But, and, and this is where your work came into play and really helped shape the stepping stones, the scaffolding that's so necessary. I found myself having to double back a lot and almost like at times I felt like it was a little bit of damage control because suddenly it was, Whoa! you know, here's an inquiry question. And I had to reteach and double back. I'm like, there's got to be a better way. And, yeah. you know, then dive into inquiry. And I was like, oh, I saw, you. I saw the pool and I was just like, it's the pool. It's, you got to yeah. scaffold those steps. It's that, it's like, would you say it's like a slow relinquishing of control that yeah. you're doing, like you know, you're, there's, you're holding yeah. their hand and then you're letting them go fly away a little bit. At times, at, at times, you know, um, gosh, I've seen teachers just beautifully bounce around the pool in a given day. You know, elementary teachers have such a great opportunity because they're relatively they're with the same group of scholars all day long. I've seen primary teachers, you know, begin the day with a structured maths lesson. They come back after recess. They do a guided literacy lesson. They come back after lunch and there's a free play lesson. And so they're bouncing around the pool all, all day because they have the same students. They have such a great lens on the student's skill set, where they are as learners, how to best support them. And then I see teachers at the high school level do something different. You know, they start and structured and there's more of that gradual release of responsibility over the year. Um, and, you know, inquiry isn't a, an I do, we do, you do like structure, although the pool kind of like could suggest that from shallow mm -hmm. to deep. There really is a, a tendency of where are students at? What is our curriculum and how could we scaffold accordingly? When I look at our curriculum in British Columbia, there's certain concepts and certain curricular standards that I believe fit beautifully in the shallow end. And then there are some that I think fit beautifully in the deeper end. And so, you know, it's not this chronological approach or this linear approach. It really is being reflective of the amount of agency our students have as they're exploring the curriculum. You know, that is the hallmark of successful inquiry, in my humble opinion. It, it isn't that we all get to free 
and you have to be at free by the end of the year. It's, I want to see a change of agency in every student schooling experience. I want to see them feel more empowered, make more genuine decisions in their learning and have some more voice and choice in what their schooling looks like and sounds like and feels like. So for teachers listening, you don't have to get to free. It's more, how is the, how, how is there a change of agency across your time with your students? That's a big question I often ask Shannon. Yeah, I think that's, and that's really important because I I think there is this notion that we all have to get to free. And I know I did it, especially during COVID when I was in a high school where we were on almost like a quarter system, right? Where we had a block all morning and all afternoon. I, I literally ran out of time and I kind of felt bad. I remember being at the end of the of the course and being, oh, I didn't get them a chance to do a free inquiry because I really needed a scaffold because there's a lot of students yeah. that would come into grade eight or let's say grade nine, grade 10 English or social studies and they had never done any inquiry. So I'm really doing the baby yeah. steps. But I, yeah. I, I really appreciated that you differentiated between the two types of classrooms between high school and elementary because I believe that that bouncing around in elementary again yeah they have the same kids all day while in high school they're you know it's would you say you have to kind of you have to read the room right you have to figure out have these kids had experience with inquiry already and then where can I start I don't necessarily have to start at structure though it just depends on the room would you agree yeah, I think I think you know that phrase reading the room is so darn powerful. You know, that would be something that happens in every grade level, not just high school. But I, I think if we could talk real for a second, Shannon, because I know you're up for it, you know, I think in the high school level, um, sadly, broadly speaking, many of our students have become complacent and they've bought into the game of learning, the game of learning, whatever that looks like. And, and they're waiting. They're waiting to be told what they're to do. They're waiting for an assignment, they're waiting to turn in tasks. And so when you say reading the room, well, a lot of students in the high school level are coming in and, and we're asking them from an inquiry stance to do certain things that they haven't done or they haven't done for a long time. And so that scaffolding there is really critical because agency will feel overwhelming for a student who has checked out or become complacent or who hasn't been asked or ha- who hasn't been a part of a co-design process. And so I'm very, when you say read the room, I spend weeks getting to know students. I spend a lot of time documenting where they're at and how they're feeling. In fact, that's a question I ask students every week. How are you feeling about yourself as a learner? And I want to hear the things that I'm trying to cultivate. I want to hear engaged, excited, curious, um, confident, competent. I don't want to hear anxious, overwhelmed, uncertain, right? And so if I do hear those feelings, that's a really important point of reference for me to reflect on and what am I doing and what do they need different to scaffold? Mm. So I think that complacency piece is is critical for high school teachers to tune into as we're trying to empower our scholars. How do we do so safely so they don't feel overwhelmed is something that is always at the back of my head. So do you have any this is I'm putting you on the spot here, uh, like a tip or technique, like what happens when you do read the room and you do hear those words? I'm feeling anxious and, you know, I don't like what I'm doing. How do what, how do you deal with that? Well, the, I put the mirror on myself because most often it's not yeah, something that they've done. It's something yeah. that I've done. And so I look at my lesson. I look at my energy. Have I gone too fast? Have I been, have I clarified? Have I broken down enough? Um, And then I just ask the darn students, right? Like I ask the kids and I listen to my scholars 
the amount of times they're talking and I'm listening in my classroom and I'm not at the front of the room talking at them, I think that's uh, that's something really I'm, I'm mindful of. The more I ask, the more I listen, and the more I get them talking, the more my teaching is informed. So nowadays, those feelings bubble up a lot less frequently than when I started teaching, Shannon. You know, when I started teaching, I made a lot of inquiry mistakes. And one of them was I, I jumped too fast, too soon to the deep end. And so now those scaffolding measures, I hear that a lot less frequently from students. And if I do, I'm more attuned to them early because it's so uncommon that it happens in my practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really important that when the mistakes do happen, right, when the messiness does happen, that educators actually give themselves permission to take a breath and come back and dial back and go, okay, you know, this is where I've gone too fast. You know, I know instead of worrying so much about, say, a deadline or the day we're going to have a celebration of learning, let's go back. Let's go back to the drawing board. It'll be so much more significant for students in terms of their learning to go back and take your time and not worry about meeting a deadline. Well, you've said a phrase that I just want to lift up and it's it's go back. And uh, a colleague of mine, Jessica Vance, has written a publication. It's called Leading with a Lens of Inquiry. And it's how schools can transform to an inquiry stance from the leadership perspective. And she's coined this one coaching move. It's called the go back. And a go back is kind of like what you're referring to. You're you're working with a colleague, you're working with a, a teacher, and you're hearing something and you get the sense that it, it may be time to pause the conversation and not try to continue to overwhelm or suggest or or try to get the teacher doing something. Gosh, that's not our job. And the go back is you leave, you reflect. You ask yourself some questions and then you go back to the colleague and you model the model. You say something like, you know, I reflected on our conversation and I I got really curious about and I'm wondering if you and gosh, you're, you're modeling patience, thoughtfulness, curiosity. And then you're also softer on yourself, right? Because you've given yourself grace to take time to really collect your thinking. And so I do a go back in my classroom with my scholars often. And it's so helpful for them, high school students, to see that I'm intentional, thoughtful, and caring. In fact, the first couple of days of school, Shannon, I I share with my students some core values that I have. One of the core values I have is around wellness. And I tell them I value their wellness and I value my wellness. Like, I don't want to be stressed, anxious, overwhelmed, and I certainly don't want them to. And so when I'm pulling the curtain back on my practice, like there's none of that Wizard of Oz stuff where I'm like, orchestrating everything in secret. It's really transparent with the things that you're trying to nurture and cultivate long-term with your students. And then a lot of those feelings are alleviated because there's just such transparency in the partnership. Mm -hmm. I think early in my career, I did a lot of that planning in isolation, right? I thought that was the way I had to do it was I had to be the hardest working person in the room. Not only is that a a fallacy, I need to engage my students in building the ship of which we're sailing on. But another piece is I don't need to be a cheerleader of the curriculum. That was another thing I did earlier in my career. I thought the more excited I was, the more excited they would be. And and that's just not the truth at all. You know, if I could settle into the learning, slow down and get into some skill development and really embracing curiosity, that's a transformative experience for both my students and myself. So gosh, I've referred to a lot of the mistakes I made early Mm -hmm. in my career. That's good. I I think that's, I think that's important to recognize, you know, where I am now is so different than where I was 20 years ago. Um, And I'm sure where I'll be in five, 10 years is drastically different than where I am now. And I think I learned that early in my career is that 
teaching is a reflective practice. It is a practice. It's not, I did it once, you know, I've got the unit in my binder. I could pull it out next year. It's we're constantly refining. It's it's just an expectation of the vocation as we're reflective and refining. Yeah. Um, and I just hope educators listening to the podcast embrace that it, it is a practice. We are different this year than we were last year, and we will be different in the future than we are now. I, I like how you you mentioned your values. And I remember, I think you posted a a reel on Instagram where I think you had mentioned, you listed all the things yeah. that you valued. Yeah. And I was just like, that is so awesome. And so, and I did it. I did. I, so I put my values up on the, on the wall. And so I, I've done that now for, for two years or two semesters, I should say. And it, it's an, it's invaluable. <laughs> really. It is. It is. <laughs> it really is because yeah. As something comes back, like a go back, like uh, a time to regroup, or um, you're trying to teach students to how to collaboratively learn yeah. as a po- and that's the learning together, not you know the divvying up of of tasks to aim for yeah. a grade, bingo, uh, right, and for points. Um, you know, I keep referring to what's you know those values, and I think that's it's just so important to model that for students, right? Um, yeah. to, to If I have a good foundation in what I value, I think they're going to be able to have a, a foundation in, in what they value. I want to come back to, you mentioned, you know, other teachers and for some teachers who are, you know, very traditional, they have a fantastic foundation of of the content, right? They are a very content-driven teacher, um, again, very traditional and, and and a fabulous teacher in their own right based on the content. What do you say when and you talk about inquiry and the teacher comes up to you and says, I don't have time to do inquiry. I've got all this content to get into to, to finish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow, that's a big one. Uh, you oh. just lobbed me up a big one. Um, <laughs> And there's so much to unpack with values. I just have to say, you know, the, yeah. the value conversation, maybe we can revisit because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the values are really grounding for me. Let's do, when that, the going let's gets, do, that, let's do that first. Then. Yeah. Let's okay. Do that first, yeah. Well, you, the values are so grounding for me because when the going gets tough, if I know my values and my students know my values, I could constantly kind of ground myself in them. Like my high school, as I'm sure all high schools are, are busy. It's a busy place. Like we have 1400 kids and they're transitioning all day long, going from class to class to class. Like, you know, previously they were in a math class where they're being asked to think like mathematicians. And then they go to a science class and they're asked to think like scientists. And then they come to my class and I'm saying, think like a writer and, and be empowered. And, 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 you know, to just softly welcome them in and know my values. And no matter what the energy that's coming at me, if I know my values, I could be really steadfast in my response to the energies coming into the classroom. So not just from my students, but like the hundreds of emails that are coming into our inbox, the bells can be overwhelming. My school actually let go of a bell schedule a couple of years ago, Shannon. So we don't have bells. It's like, you know, class dismiss at 9.50, go. It's been marvelous to see the impact it has on just the energy in a building to not be pushed around by bells. So another conversation, but you know, I I bring up the bells because it's very Pavlovian and it, it can be anxiety kind of inducing for students when the bell goes. And so to be really aware of all those energies that come into the classroom and to be grounded in values is so important. And then when we talk about, and this is a transition to your question, when we talk about 
um, change to practice or doing something different or implementing a different strategy, if I know the teacher's values, I could see how the strategy that we are unpacking is going to be aligned with their values. If the teacher knows their values, they could say, oh, that's actually something that I I want to do. Like if I value student choice or if I value a confident learner, this strategy is going to be aligned with that value. So, you know, not to get all Brené Brown on you, but we need to do a values program. You you go amazing. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, you know, yeah, one of my top three people I'd like to hear speak live. She's one of them. Um, Brené talks about doing a values protocol as a culture, as a school, for example. And this is something I introduce to schools that I work with often as we start with a values protocol. We narrow down all of our values to a handful. And not only is that helpful for leaders of a school as they work with their staff, but it's helpful for us all when we are considering change or the challenges we face what do we hold near and dear to our practice? And gosh, when I see teachers in schools know their values, the work is accelerated. And when I say the work, whatever it is in assessment or curriculum or inquiry, it's more easily adopted when we know our values. Um, That's the place teachers to start. It, it truly is. It truly is. I'm working with a school down in California next week, and they have 11 new staff. They're a staff of 40, 11 new. And I thought, what a great opportunity for us to get to know them and for us to kind of regroup, reground ourselves as a staff. What do we value? Like, I know what the teachers who I worked with last year value, but I don't know these new teachers and I want to honor them in inviting them into the culture of this particular building and this new space that they find themselves entering. So we're going to start next Monday with the values protocol. We're going to map out those values. And then we're going to talk about practices that align with those values. And then we're going to talk about, guess what? Practices that don't align with those values. And then I'm going to turn to yep. the principal. Yep. I'm going to say, can we get rid of those practices? And guess what the principal is going to say? The principal is going to say, heck yeah. yeah and then yeah. teachers have the liberation to do something different to align with their values. And that's why I'm there is to introduce those different structures, those yeah. different routines and protocols, whether it's inquiry or assessment. So beginning with values is so important, Shannon. It's critical. I love how you frame it with other educators in a really positive way, right? Let's talk about your values. It's very, it becomes that, it's like what you do with students, like student-centered and they're the students, yeah. right? Well, yeah, um, big time. And then you use that to, you you talk about what's positive. What are you already doing? Because I think a mistake that's made, and I know I've done it when I've done present, when I've done some presenting is kind of, you know, attack right away at this is what you're doing wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And and instead, it's like that gentle transition. So that creates an awareness. So they they can, they can compare and contrast the practices in, yeah. in relation yeah. to their values. And then as things come up, especially as they're learning about, say, how to implement in, the inquiry process or develop an inquiry mindset, they actually see oh, this really does align with my values so much more. Yeah, you know, I I think the phrase model the model, if I had a dime for every time I said that to leaders, um, we often say we want curious kids, we need curious adults, we want collaborative kids, we need collaborative adults. And then I look at leadership and I ask them how they're leading. And if leaders aren't leading and presenting experiences that are collaborative, or if we go to a staff meeting, it's memo, 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 that could have been sent out in the email, 
those are really problematic spaces. If we want something to show up in a classroom, teachers are never going to do that unless they feel it and experience it themselves. And so modeling the model is important. And, and we could ride that model, the model bus all the way home. I, I kid you not, like, you know, really slowing down. This is such a silly move, a cheeky move, but slowing down and putting your hand to your chin and, and showing thoughtfulness mm. and, and then saying the language, saying, you know, I'm reflecting I'm curious. Mm -hmm. One question I have, like that's all inquiry language, but we need to show it. We just, we just don't do it like an assignment. We actually are embracing those dispositions ourselves. So Mm -hmm. absolutely. I, I visit so many schools where you could walk in and you could see where the leadership is right away. And then, you know, where the work has to go. If the lead, if I don't work with the leadership, I'm never going to see success with, with the teachers in terms of learning about and implementing inquiry. Because teachers will always revert back to the leader of the school. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, Inquiry Mindset Assessment Edition, which was the book we used for the Beyond Report Cards book club two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago. It was uh, so fantastic. I want to touch on, so you share in the book of course, you know, assessment is my, 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 shit, I know right? it's I your, like. yeah, it's your baby. So, yeah. you know, when a new book comes out and it's got an assessment related topic, I'm, I'm yeah. all over it. And because I was already into inquiry, you know, I, I just, I absolutely loved it. So in the book, you share 10 student centered assessment beliefs, including things like sharing learning goals, co-designing criteria, providing feedback, Mm-hmm. fostering a growth mindset, accessing prior knowledge, self and peer assessment, formative assessment, process over product. So, and, and, you know, the list goes on. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's, you didn't, I don't get the sense when I reread that book, because I reread it all the time. Oh, <laughs> Not you. all the time, a few times yeah. when I, when I, when, you know, you know, right, when, when I can, I don't get the sense that you're trying to school anyone. I get the sense that it's, these are, you're just trying to enlighten teachers that these are just already really good practices. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Do you want to, yeah. do you want to talk about that a little well, bit? Well, yeah, you know, the sketch note itself and those 10 student centered assessment beliefs, um, you know, it actually surfaced from a partnership at a school I support in Switzerland and the school had uh, a committee of teachers and staff that had been researching what they were looking for to be best practice in terms of assessment. And so they engaged in some action research, a lot of, you know, lit review work, and eventually they settled on these 10 things. And the staff was presented with these 10 things and the staff said, yes, let's commit to this. And then the rubber hit the road and they said, well, how do we implement these beliefs? What do these look like in practice? And so that's when I was working with them in inquiry. They said, Trevor, can you help us with this student-centered assessment belief kind of framework? And then my work came to be, how do I support teachers in implementing these things? But I had already been doing them in my practice with my scholars. So the, the partnership was just beautifully aligned. The timing was wonderful. Um, and, and you know, it's funny, teachers tend to bounce around that document a little bit. Like number seven, Shannon, is mm-hmm. self-assessment and peer assessment skills are taught and yeah. nurtured. Yeah. And you can't get to number seven beautifully and powerfully unless mm-hmm. you do one, two, three, four, five, and six first. Like, 
Number one is, you know, the the students need to know the learning target. They can't self-assess and peer assess beautifully unless they know the learning target and unless they know the success criteria. A lot of teachers will jump the peer assessment and they'll hear things from students like good job or well done. And and that's just or they'll circle in BC, they'll circle the proficiency scale and not really have any knowledge about what that means, right? No, not at all. And so really to, to look at those beliefs as a series of practices that scaffold to better experiences for students. So they're becoming more assessment capable in their own right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the heart of that document. And and when I workshop assessment, that's one workshop we do is we look at those, we map out strategies and structures for each with authenticity in mind. So one thing I see when I visit schools is teachers will write on the board a learning target, like they'll write a, a learning goal. And I'll walk in and I could see it's merely on the board because Trevor's visiting the school. But when you talk to students about the learning target, students either say the right things or they say the wrong things, right? Like we're looking for authenticity. One question I love to ask students, well, three questions. What are you learning about? Why are you learning it? And how are you going to be assessed? 90% of kids can communicate what they're learning about. They can summarize the learning. Fewer students can tell me why they're learning it. Why is it important? A lot of students will say, because the teacher told me to, or because it's in the textbook, there's no real world tie to what they're learning about. And then assessment, kids are like, I have no idea. Predominantly kids will say there's a test. There'll be a test. I think there may be a test. So those three questions really speak to the authenticity that we're striving for when we look at those 10 student standard assessment beliefs, Shannon. Yeah. I think it it just makes so much sense to me that when this book came out, that if we're already co-designing and co-constructing the inquiry process, that that we take that next step and co-design and co-construct the assessment piece. Yeah. Yeah. But I I have a question for you about, about the assessment piece. So, and I, I, maybe I'm, I might be, it might be my own misread, or maybe you can just clarify it for me. It's not like we're handing over all of the power necessarily maybe power is not the right word to the student because sometimes when i talk about co-constructing assessment or like as it is with like the new reporting order in british columbia yeah um some teachers kind of get the feeling that we're taking power away from them and i'm like well no you're the one with the professional judgment is it what you're trying to say is you've already got the intention. You already know what the expectation is. At least you, you should know either on a, the criteria for a proficiency scale, you're then handing it over to the students to see if they can match what you've written and then guide them to the same yeah. criteria you've created. Yeah. Am I kind of, kind of, you know, like if we have the a proficiency scale and some indicators towards, yeah. I tend to tuck that aside as, as a blueprint over here on my desk. Okay. Okay. I don't merely give that to scholars. I tuck no. it aside. No. And then through a series of activities, we'll, we'll, we'll co-design success criteria. Sometimes we look at exemplars. Sometimes I just flat out ask them like, what could this look like and sound like and feel like? And they begin to write down indicators in their own language. And then I walk through the room and I have a look and and what holes need to be filled, for example, what misconceptions do they have and how can I get uh, an idea of where they're at before I introduce any other language? And I tell you, like 90% of the time, students get 
almost there. Like they're really? so close hey. that okay. I just need to, add, I just need to add some academic jargon from time to time. Right. Right. I need to, right. I, I, maybe I throw a word bank up on the board okay. and I say, we missed some language oh, here. I'd love for you idea. to have some of this up, you know, or when we look at exemplars, they may identify something in an exemplar that we can then add to their indicators. So it's not relinquishing control over assessment yeah. at all. It's creating yeah. more assessment clarification. And we know when assessment criteria is in student-friendly language, they're more able to self-assess, peer assess, and perform because they actually understand what this assessment thing yeah. is all about. Right. But predominantly assessment something that's given to kids and not built with them. Yeah. So I, I think that's a big distinction I want teachers to shift towards is, can I create mm -hmm. a little bit more space and give a little bit mm -hmm. more time to build some of this with students? And the return on investment from the time that we're spending differently is going to be greater for teachers. When we build it with scholars, we're going to get a better performance. We're going to get mm -hmm. things that we can't get any other way, a strong right. sense of belonging, a strong you know, level of inclusivity yeah. and equity. We can't get that if we're just giving and dropping on. Yeah. So it's a better return on investment and it's a different return on investment. But but time right. is a big piece here, Shannon. Yeah. You know, we should be doing less tasks and doing them better in order to shift our practice towards what in yeah. British Columbia is really at the heart of our redesign curriculum. It's do less and do do what we're doing more powerfully mm -hmm. and student centered. Yeah, really, really immerse in that. I I, I couldn't agree more. I Thank you so much for that that clarification. I think, and, and that's the piece I think that I'm still struggling with, right? Because I do a lot of design work in terms of like developing criteria, proficiency scales, proficiency sequences. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm really, uh, I, last year we used Katie White's book yeah. uh, on yeah. self and fear Fantastic. assessment. She's amazing, Such, isn't she? Oh my she? gosh, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, isn't she awesome? Um, and a great baby step was, to take the teacher-centered language, like I give a proficiency scale with the, to the students and have them put it into student-friendly language, or at least come up with the criteria that's more of the, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the stuff that's necessary, but I'm not necessarily going to yeah. evaluate, right? Yeah. Like um, you need to have, you know, uh, I, this is not, this is a terrible example on my summer brain, but you know, things like, you know, how many, how many pictures should there be and, yeah, and what's yeah. the approximate length it should be. And, and, and yet still also trying to get them to, you don't want to pigeonhole like, or sorry, back anyone into a corner who feels like they're not artistic enough, yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah. need to have two pictures in there done to the best of your ability as opposed to two you know yeah. art yeah. gallery type yeah. pictures sorry yeah. i know that's kind of going off on a little bit of a tangent no just it's not a, it's, it's really helpful stone, yeah it's right? really helpful you know I, I think you know several strategies that i encourage teachers to adopt to really co-design one is to give students four exemplars four so we have across the proficiency okay. scale and then call a group of three or four students up and just fishbowl with them and say let's look at these exemplars can you order them towards just the proficiency language not even criteria just the, the proficiency language alone kids can do that 
they can yeah. sort those four exemplars. Yeah. And then I'll take those exemplars once they have them in the correct order and I'll just put them up on my whiteboard and then I'll give them a whiteboard marker. And I'll say, I want you to tell me the difference between this one and this one and write some things that you see that are different. And then tell me the difference between this one and this one and write what you see is different. The success criteria that they write on the board Gosh, I couldn't have written it better myself because they're seeing it and they're picking it up. Then I erase the board. I shuffle the exemplars. I bring up another group, another group of three or four. We'll do an activity like that once a unit where, and that's just one activity of a few that we engage in to have students better understand proficiency and build the success criteria together. So the language they've written, I put right on the rubric. I put it Mm. right on the rubric so that they can see. Ideally, I have to be honest, Shannon, ideally, I work in a single point rubric, I I look at I look at proficiency, and I just look at indicators. And then there's like a window outside of that. So I can help students get there. Or if they want to go further, I don't need all the success criteria for emerging, developing, proficient and extending. But to get to a a great student centered places, let's co-design indicators of proficient and then look beyond and before as a window towards growth. Does that make sense? Oh, no, 100 percent. And and what I love about the single point rubric, it is such a, a viable option for students to self-assess with, right? Oh, and they're not so looking at too much. And that's why, so the work I've done with proficiency sequences, which is our different yeah, than scale, yeah. is literally all that su- success criteria then flipped on its side so that every student actually starts at that emerging criteria and it builds on yeah, as opposed yeah, totally. to they're hitting a level and then i found they 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 have that 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 pathway and it's it's just it's so so empowering um, you know any any time we feel like learning is competitive for students like yeah. like they they compare themselves to their peer in a way in which they feel better or less than we really need to question how our assessment structures are promoting that kind of yeah. com- competition that that we don't want because we want it to be reflective and safe and about their personal growth. And so a single point column allows it to be less competitive because there's less language to compare across each other. Numbers, you know, the quantitative side of assessment, yeah. that has a really nasty effect on students comparing themselves to one another. And there's a lot of research that tells us that that's the case. The minute we put a number on feedback, kids don't look at the feedback, they only look at the yeah. number. So yeah. we need to do something different with numbers and engage in more rich, powerful, descriptive feedback if we care about propelling growth, if we care yeah. about students actually growing over time. That's right. So those things that we know promote a, a comp- competitive feeling in the classroom, ooh, we want to shake those off. We want to let go of those. And that, you know, what you said there about the, the, the proficiency being kind of flattened out and students can see next steps. Well, it's not as competitive in that classroom as it is in, in others that have, you know, have this really big, robust rubric and they're just seeing themselves as not yet there or that person's there and I'm not. That can have a nasty impact on how students see themselves. And we want to avoid that. We want them to feel confident and competent and comfortable in their yeah. learning, don't we? Yeah. And the feedback part, it, like it, that's so, so important. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be a certain number of sentences in terms of feedback. I mean, it's, no. it, it depends if they're actually using it to move ahead on their own learning journey, your feedback is working, right? Yeah. I could yeah. write a paragraph and they could do nothing with it, right? Well, yeah. So it's not feedback, even quantity. yeah. It's, no, it's, it's qual- no. the quality of the feedback. Quality. It's what they do with it. We don't know yeah. until they actually use it 
whether it yeah. works, right? Well, you know, there there is such a thing as powerful feedback and bad feedback, redundant yeah. feedback and pointless feedback. Good powerful job. feedback. Yeah. Girl. Powerful feedback is um is and I'm citing the work of Ron Berger here. Here he's a dear friend and mentor for me. He's taught me that feedback needs to be kind, specific, and helpful. And you just said the kind. Good job. Yeah. Like that's not specific, nor is it helpful. If I hit one sentence that's kind, specific, and helpful, that's going to have more of an impact than sometimes when I write a whole paragraph of feedback. And then the kicker is we need to give students time to use the feedback to demonstrate growth. A lot of teachers will give feedback and then just hope students will demonstrate it the next time. No, no, no. I want you to demonstrate it right now. So sometimes I'll call up students and I'll ask them to identify success criteria and evidence of success criteria and bring it up and show it to me. Then I give them feedback, kind, specific, and helpful. And then I say, how many minutes do you need to demonstrate growth from the feedback? Kids will say four minutes, 10 minutes, 14 minutes. I give them time because I value their growth. I value them showing me that they're using the feedback. If not, what's the bloody point? <laughs> right? right? There's less no point. Is more. Less, to- is, less more. is more. Less is more. This is what you mentioned with the curriculum, yeah. right? If we would just take a breath, right? Instead of trying to drill and kill these kids with all of the content and what ends up happening is instead of having, you know, that inch deep, mile wide curriculum where everyone's yeah. just skimming the surface of it. Yeah, we're going right? deeper. They're, yeah. They're, yeah, they're literally going deeper. Well, and, and I, I can't help but think of that experience that I just described and, and the, the growth for the learner, the competency development. They're, they're more reflective. They're more intentional. They're more aware. Um, they're more engaged and involved. They're less complacent. And then I'm actually seeing growth. Like you know, the numbers will improve because they're taking the feedback and using it. And gosh, I, I couldn't think of a, a more healthy way for me to assess. Like, why am I doing all the assessment work yeah. void of that rich student growth? If I value yeah. growth, I'm going to see it more likely if I give kind, specific and helpful feedback, and then I give them some time to use it. The point is, or the trick is, I can't do a thousand things. I have to do fewer things and do them better to see that growth across time. Yeah. I know I'm speaking your language. No. I can just oh, see it. You're like man, nodding you your head. <laughs> I'm just nodding. People can yeah, see right. The, they're not going to see the video, but it's like, oh, I tell you, I know I could just spend hours talking about that. As, as can I. As, I and you know, Shannon, I, that's why I, I wrote the book. If I could just tell you a little bit of why I wrote my the assessment please, book. Please, please. Is um, it actually surfaced out of a partnership in Mesa, Arizona. I was working with, a, I still work with this school district. It's been a number of years that we've worked together. And we were starting a survey kids about how curious they were in their classrooms and classrooms that I had worked in and supported kids were reflecting a higher level of curiosity on a 10 point scale. They were saying eight, nine or 10 out of 10. And then some classrooms that I weren't, I hadn't worked in, they were reflecting lower curiosity scores. And then we looked at some correlating data. So when kids are really curious, we looked at their achievement. We looked at their marks. Kids were doing better in classrooms where curiosity was high. That, that's cool, right? Like if we have curious kids, they do better in school. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we looked at their attendance. So when we have curious kids, guess what happened with the attendance? It was higher than yep. classrooms where they weren't reflecting a high it's level more of curiosity. It's more meaningful. They it's, want to be they, there. They want to be there. So they're coming more often and they're coming in a more timely manner. And then thirdly, we asked them some questions about how school makes them feel. When you're really curious, 
what do you think of school? And they said all the beautiful things. School is fun. School is engaging. School is belonging for me. But then we added some questions about assessment in the same survey. How does assessment make you feel? And what do you think came up when we asked students? Very curious. How does assessment make you feel? Shannon, any any feelings you think they shared with us? Um, well, it, I guess it just depends on the, you know, whether I'll let you talk, you tell yeah. me, you tell me. <laughs> yeah. Well, sadly kids said all the wrong things, right? Yeah, they yeah, said the right yeah. things because it created change, but the, the wrong things, the things we don't want assessment makes me anxious. Yes. Assessment is a space of uncertainty that their words, not ours. Um, is assessment, um, a teacher job, a student job or a collaborative job students there said it's a teacher's job. Mm -hmm. And I said, stop it. This is so disheartening. I have done all this work in this district and I haven't cracked open the assessment egg. And so, you know, what I did is I brought the exact same survey back to my own classroom, to my own students. And I asked them questions and they said the darndest things. When I asked them questions about assessment, they said assessment is, um, something where it's clarifying, where it's, is it a me job, a you job, or a we job? My student said it's a we job, we job. right? Yeah. Um, assessment is informative. Like, I kid you not, they said all the right things. And that's why I wrote the book that, that you see before you, the assessment publication, because if we're doing all this rich work and in inquiry, but then the assessment realm yeah. is completely misaligned, yeah. if it's not collaborative, if it's not co-designed, if it's not transparent, if it's not scaffolded, then students are honestly they're 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 not getting as wholesome and rich a yeah, schooling experience. Right. It kind of so, ruins it. It kind of ruins it. It does. All that it work. does. They have this really student-centered experience and inquiry. And then at the end of the the experience, a teacher takes something and marks it and puts a grade on it, which is yeah. warranted, but it's completely void in a lot of circumstances of a student-centered experience. And so yeah. that's why I wrote the book before you. And and that I, I have to be honest, I, I I've come to a place now where I could say which book I'm most proud of. It's kind of like saying which child you love the most. Yeah, yeah. But the assessment book is really the one I'm most proud of because yeah. of just what I've described. If we're doing one thing, we have to do the other. And if we're not doing the other, then really what is the point of the first? So two takeaways I get from hearing you talk about inquiry and assessment is the sense of community in a classroom. And also a sense of safety, yeah. right? Because yeah. when communication, when all of this is transparent and you're not hiding anything, it's not, again, there's not a grade on a paper that suddenly, surprise, this is what you got. They have no idea how they, why they got, what they got. there is this, it just feels safe and rich and it's just delightful. Yeah, you know, we we call that a community of learners, right? Yeah. We we how are we creating a community of learners where they feel safe? And gosh, the, it's not rocket science. Like there are some things no, that we just right. shouldn't do, right? And so right. one thing I've adopted, and I tell you, it was such an important shift in my practices. I let students sit where they want to sit. And I know some teachers are going to say, I can't have students sit next yeah. to each other. Like those are the ones I need to separate. You know, I find that there's such rich takeaways and growth when students have choice in who they connect with. So in my room, there are groups of four, three or four, you know, my international students or my ELL students, they all sit next to each other. Why do they sit next to each other? 
because they have common strategies that they're utilizing, that they share. They're dealing with common feelings, aligned feelings of, I'm in this new country and this foreign experience. And a teacher misconception is I need to sit them next to an uh, an English language speaker to help their language acceleration. And in fact, they're going to grow more as a language speaker if they're next to someone who's talking at a similar pace if if they if they can understand the person and not feel overwhelmed by a language speaker who is native to the the country that they're in you know i was in a report card writing conference last year shannon and this is so beautiful and a student sat down with me and i said what are you most proud of and he said i'm most proud of how much i've grown as a writer and i said i agree with you you have grown tremendously as a writer so no surprise and i said tell me how did you grow as a writer this year And he said, it's because I took the feedback that my peers gave me and that you gave me and I used it. And I said, shut the front door. Kids don't use feedback. Why did you use the feedback in this class? And he said, it's because I trusted my peers and I trusted you. And I said, isn't that the truth? When there's psychological safety, it actually impacts student achievement. And and so sometimes teachers hear relationship building and they think that's trite, like, you know, that's gushy stuff, right? No, relationship building and psychological safety actually impacts achievement in the long term. It sure does. I'll, I'll never forget that little experience because it, he's not the only one. Like a lot of students would say the same thing. And that's the beauty of report card writing conferences is you draw the curtain back on your students, their self-assessment, look for alignment and get to the heart of why they feel like they grew. And that young man, gosh, I just, I hold on to that little story because the seeds you plant at the start of the year, like for us, Shannon, we started school year in September, the moves you make on the very first few days allow experiences like that to happen at the end of the term or at the end of the semester. Mm-hmm. So we talk about not diving into the deep end. I didn't get to that conversation with that student on day one. I got there after five months of scaffolding and yeah. creating the conditions for him to feel safe, empowered and assessment capable. Yeah, that's... So that's a bit of a provocative question, isn't it? How yeah. are the things you're doing in your first few days reflective of what you value? Mm-hmm. And then the seeds that you're planting for such rich experiences later on in the semester. I, I believe in that. Like one of the the gears, things I've shifted to is instead of like spending a whole block going over the course outline, yeah. right, we actually yeah. get into, you know, uh, like uh, especially with um, like grade uh, 10, 11, and 12s, because I wanted to use like say standards-based grading with them and they're expecting, you know, percentages and all this kind of stuff. I'll ask them a question like, uh, what do you expect from school and what does school expect from you? whoa wow yeah Yeah. it's awesome oh my gosh it's awesome and they will share you know I don't feel like I'm heard they you know teachers need to understand I play competitive sports and I also have a job or I'm a caregiver of my siblings and this is what I you know and it just all of a sudden they become and and it's this vulnerability that I think yeah, it's just, it's absolutely Well, it's huge. And what you're describing there in terms of sharing the landscape of the curriculum, not only do they see themselves in the curriculum, right? They, they see a sense of belonging. They see someone that is listening to them, 
but they're also flexing competencies that we can't flex if we do it any other way. Right. Like I think of the, the, the awareness, like we can go down the curricular competencies and see how many they're flexing that yeah. you could use as evidence to report towards those curricular yeah. competencies in discussions and conversations like those. We can't flex certain curricular competencies if I stand at the front of the room and talk at a group of students for an hour. Yeah. And so this is where assessment really has to align with pedagogy. We, we in British Columbia need to teach differently to gather evidence of certain skills because we're not going to have our students flex those skills if we're teaching at the front of the room yeah. for the entire class. We need to engage them in collaborative structures. We need to engage them in thinking routines and protocols where we're listening and then we can gather evidence of those competencies because we can't gather evidence in any other way, truly. And so I think that's a key piece that I am hoping British Columbia teachers embrace is now that we have the assessment order, the assessment policy framework, we really need to reflect on, did I shift my teaching when the redesign curriculum was launched? And if I haven't, I need to do something different to gather different evidence towards yeah. what the assessment policy is telling me I need to yeah. report out on. Yeah. Yes, it's 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 going to be messy, but I'm telling you, I'm let's I'm embrace the so, mess. I embrace yeah. the messy. Totally. Right? So I want to switch a little bit here um, and actually talk about you. You, I think, pulled back from the classroom a little bit this yeah, year to just be a able little. to go, yeah. go abroad. What was that like? What was that transition like? Yeah. Well, Shannon, I, I love teaching. Like, I, I don't want to leave the classroom. And so, you know, I've been doing this consultancy work for a lot of years and, and I've been juggling both. I have an amazing school district and I take a lot of unpaid days. I've had amazing leadership who has supported me having a foot in the classroom and a foot in many other people's classrooms. And um, this year was the first year where I decided to reduce my teaching time. So now I'm teaching afternoons. Um, and it's been great. You know, I think the, the virtual landscape allows me to Zoom with many of my partner schools before school or after school. So if you can imagine, I spend some of my morning hours Zooming with European and South African schools. And I spend my after school hours Zooming with colleagues in Hong Kong and Singapore and Australia, etc. Um, and I, I just value doing both. You know, I, I know there for me, I, I when I speak about inquiry and assessment, it has to be something that I've tried, that I'm doing, that I'm living and breathing. And that's a value that I hear feedback from when I speak to a school and I support a school. They really, really appreciate that I am in the classroom. And then selfish, selfishly, Shannon, my, my eldest son is coming to my high school next year and my younger son will come there in a few years. And I want to, I want to have both. I want to see my kids grow through this school and, you know, kind of spy on them through the halls and, yep. and that, live that in the neighborhood me. of which I teach. Yep. And, and so, yep. you know, t consultancy and research and authorship was never an exit strategy. Like I never yep. did this work because I wanted to leave the classroom. You know, truly, I feel like I'm, I'm just the luckiest guy in the world that I get to go visit the most innovative schools or the more, most committed staffs around the world. And then I get to do my day job, which is teaching scholars, which is the most important job that I do. But I'm a better self because of all the learning that I engage in. Like I was just in Australia for a month. I go down to California for two weeks supporting schools. At the end of the month, I go to Korea and Manila. And then I come back and guess what I do? I launch a school year with, with my scholars. Like, oh, how cool is that, that I get to yeah. do both? So no, no, I, you no, won't I see me leave the classroom. You'll see me remain in the classroom. Yes, and and nice. reducing my teaching load to part-time has been yeah. really helpful just for sanity, yeah. to be quite yeah. honest. And I think, I mean, they're they're so lucky to, you know, be able to, you know, glean um 
all your your wisdom. Well, in, yeah, in it's a partnership. Areas. Yeah, I it's learned so, so much great. from them. And um, the beautiful thing is, again, there's no hiding. Like my students know the work I do. They see the work I do. You know, it's and parents of students see the work I do. And um, gosh, yeah, with such an open kind of classroom, quote unquote, you know, you really have to um, put your best foot forward constantly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that opportunity. It's not pressure. It's just, wow, I'm so, so grateful for the opportunity to do both. Okay. I want to be aware of your uh, your time and I Oh Shannon I got so loads much. of time for you. Okay, loads well, of time for gotta, you. We got to do the elevator pitch. This is right. how I'm ending every one of my podcasts. So elevator pitch. So yep. it's going to be catered to you, all right? <laughs> okay. Got to be ready. You got to think about your timing here there Trevor, okay? Uh okay, so an educator gets on the elevator and tells you that they're in the thick of the messiness of doing inquiry with their students and they're ready to give up. You've only got three floors to convince them to embrace the messy. What do you tell them? Yeah. Well, floor one, I talk about curiosity and making sure your kids are curious about the curriculum. And if they're not, stop, make sure they're curious. Floor two, I just briefly talk about competency development and say, you know, what are the skills your students are sharpening? The yeah. more you sharpen skills, the more, you know, inquiry will be better. And then I ask them, what, what do you value? And, oh, and just yeah. stay true to your values, right? And if your value is agency, then the mess is worth worth it and your students will be grateful for it. So gosh, three floors, three tips. <laughs> yeah, and then I wipe my hands That's clean. Very, I say, yeah. go on your way. <laughs> yeah, right. Hand them your book right. on you know, leaving. Those, those <laughs> questions, Shannon, are so difficult. I was just on a podcast with a colleague in Australia and he, he said, can you define inquiry in one sentence? And I kindly said, no. <laughs> and there was a pause on the <laughs> yeah, podcast. Right? And I said, yeah. can you at least give me 60 seconds? And yeah. so I think those those notions of this theory and these values yeah. and the stance to be kind of, yeah. you know, compartmentalized in a single sentence, let alone three floors on an elevator, yeah. it's, yeah. it's really challenging. Yeah. And, and it is a school of thinking like Kath Murdoch has she's written 17 oh, yes. books about inquiry. I think yeah. of the work of Ron Richard, Ron Berger, Guy Claxton. I'm looking at my books in my library. And these are all colleagues when I said earlier that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants it really is a school of thinking. And I just encourage teachers to become more familiar with that school of thinking. And I'm certain they would find a lot of alignment with regards to their values and what the stance proposes. And then, you know, it's making sense in the mess, right? Shannon is yes. what are some structures and protocols yeah. that we can implement to make sense of those values, right? Trevor McKenzie, you're, you're a gem. You're, you're a BC <laughs> gem. You really are. I, Thank you. I am so grateful for this conversation. We could go on and on and on. And I just want to, you know, shout out to listeners. If you don't have any of Trevor's books, any other books in the works, by the way? Yeah, I'm writing one right now. I'm writing Aren't two right you? now, but I'm 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 almost done my fourth book. Yeah. And it's about um it's about questioning and questioning protocols. So I teach so many schools these questioning frameworks nice. to help them leverage curiosity and then use those questions to not just strengthen competencies, but shape, you know, what comes next. And so there are probably going to be 10 or 15 high impact questioning protocols. Yeah. And I'm writing a lot right now and I'm deeply, deeply enjoying it. And so that will be out sometime in the future. And you're the first person okay. I'd publicly share that with Shannon. And so I'm, I'm happy I'm to so share lucky. it with you. And you, you mentioned something in British Columbia, like, I just want to, you know, celebrate you and your work beyond report cards on Facebook. That community is so powerful. And there's something special about what's happened in BC over the course of my career. 
we, we often say there's something in the water here, but I just think, you know, as a vocation, as a practice, you know, you embody that, you represent that. And there are just so many colleagues here in BC. We could talk about the school of thinking here in BC I alone, um, but grateful for the work you do and, and congratulations on your podcast. I'm so honored to be a, a, a visitor today. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Embrace the Messy podcast. This podcast was produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Tene First Nation. I feel truly blessed to be able to live, work, and play here. I'd love to hear from all of my listeners. If you are inspired by someone who embraces the messy and would like me to interview them on the podcast, or you have feedback about an episode, send me an email at embracethemessypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode. This is Shannon Schinkel signing off, reminding you to embrace the messy. Bye.